Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhan. This is the mini-series within it, The Spiritual Hero, with special reference to Jesus Christ. We begin our podcast today with some theory. My emerging argument is that at the centre of the material we are exploring, there is, as it were, a spectrum which has two poles. At one end is the archetypal core, at the other is the historical juncture. Let me explain. The archetypal core will become the subject of deeper exploration in future podcasts. But for the moment, think of it as an underlying infinitely powerful and complex template that gives birth to both the material world and that of the psyche. In the past, this has been called a god of some sort. Psyche refers both to the conscious and the unconscious. Humans have emerged out of nature, billions of years of evolution on this planet alone. First as unconscious creatures, immersed in nature and dominated by instincts. But with the extraordinary development of our brains, we developed a conscious centre which we call ego, and a complex psyche which includes not only instincts and ego, but higher consciousness. Individual archetypes are the further elaboration of instincts out of nature as we become human. In Jung's acute formulation, archetypes are the images, the spiritualization, the self-portraits of instincts. As instincts evolve through the human self, they take on a far more complex form than those in animals. Archetypes are a very broad category, with great variation between authors. They are templates or pre-existing potentialities in the human psyche, and may be thought of in three groups. Firstly, transpersonal. For example, light and dark, masculine and feminine, good and evil, consciousness, shadow, trickster, hero, the divine child, great mother, God, the saviour. Secondly, archetypes with the personal characteristic. For example, Aphrodite, Shiva, Shakti, Dionysus, Prometheus, Votan, Isis, Sophia, Jesus. And thirdly, abstract archetypes. For example, number, underlying form, harmony of the spheres, cross, circle, mandala, Myths are narratives filled with archetypal material which reflect the nature of consciousness, its origins, development, and sometimes its destiny. Myths are the symbolic manner by which consciousness reflects upon itself. The historical juncture, the other end of the spectrum, is the complex forces of history, economic, political, technological, military, social, and so on, of any society or civilization through which instinctual and archetypal forces are expressed. God is an archetype which expresses the practically universal conviction up to the present age that an extraordinary intelligence, call it divine for the moment, 
has created this universe, this world, this life, this consciousness and each one of us. Think of this God archetype as a light source, refracted or bent through different mediums as it passes through different cultures. And it also has different expressions on being developed through a culture in the course of its history. So the God archetype is distinct in different civilizations and tends to change and develop throughout history. It can also stagnate or decline and become extinct. Thus the God archetype changes from a polytheistic religion to a monotheistic one, obviously. And even the single God image, the monotheistic, may change over time. For example, from the start of the Old Testament compared to the end of it. Certainly, as far as Christians are concerned, there is a radical change in this imago, or archetype, since Christ is a distinct development out of Judaism. As we shortly shall see, the Christ image also goes through many developments and changes. Indeed, some feel it is due an urgent update. The archetype in itself, the core, the essence, the source, is ultimately unknowable. Beyond the limited consciousness it created or evolved, and can be portrayed as eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, ineffable, on the one hand, and on the other, its manifestation moves through history as our consciousness develops historically through time. One further point. At root, I do not feel I have to entertain on these podcasts. If you have accompanied me thus far, and I hope you continue to do so, for the journey ahead is considerable and wonderful, then you will have the passionate curiosity, the metaphysical thirst, the delight in new vistas, the deep feeling for this subject matter that has gripped all those across the ages who have been, are and will be on an identical quest. For humans are archetypally driven to seek their source and their destiny. You will, I believe therefore, welcome the highly compact metaphysics just outlined. And to make it more accessible, I have reproduced it on my website, alamulhan.com, where I will gradually build it up, section by section, with the philosophy underlying this series. Let's see how the archetypal core and the historical juncture interrelationship can be used with respect to Jesus Christ. Jesus may have started life as a human being, but is converted into the archetype of the Saviour. In essence, this archetype signifies that the divine and the ordinarily human, two sides of our own psyche, are not only in dialogue, but that the higher self, the divine, wishes to save the lower self. This is not something purely or solely metaphysical. Many people have dreams in which some representation of the higher self is attempting to communicate with the ego personality and to reorientate it. 
I've known many hundreds of such dreams in my practice as a psychotherapist. Some people can have this dream and variations of it for decades, since their spiritual principle is not integrated within them. So it's an archetype, since it has both collective and individual significance and can be found across time and cultures. Here we have then the archetypal core, the ordinary, lower, ego-dominated personality, immersed in this world and its problems, sometimes beset by darkness, even evil, possessed by contradictory and dark forces, subject to humiliation, depression, insult, deprivation, abuse, addiction, fragmentation, oppression, pornography, exploitation, is saved by the higher self. This saving process is easily and unconsciously projected onto an outside figure who becomes the saviour, be it in political or religious terms or sometimes a combination of the two. When societies and civilizations undergo similar processes, for example war, severe threat, disorientation, fragmentation, trauma and so on, a similar process occurs in the social unconscious of the group. It too unconsciously projects the saviour archetype onto a figure. Very frequently this figure is someone who has suffered in some very similar manner to the way the group has suffered. The archetype of the dying god or gods is also very common across the world. In Ragnarok, in Nordic mythology, the race of gods governed by Odin is destroyed, for example. The archetype of the dying and rising god is especially noticeable in the ancient Near East. James Fraser, in his famous work, The Golden Bough, starting in the 1890s as two volumes and extending to 12 volumes by 1915, made this the subject of his enormous research, which started by examining a single myth, but was extended to cover many ancient and some still existent cultures around the globe. He writes, When I first put pen to paper to write The Golden Bough, I had no conception of the magnitude of the voyage on which I was embarking. I thought only to explain a single rule of an ancient Italian priesthood. The magnum opus discusses fertility rites, human sacrifice, the dying god, the saviour, the scapegoat, and many other archetypal motifs which extended into modern times. Old religions were examined as fertility cults that concerned the worship and sacrifice of a sacred king. He suggested that mankind progresses from magic through religious belief to scientific thought. While Fraser has been criticised for seeing this myth of the dying and resurrecting king or god in almost all societies, many scholars feel there is nevertheless some truth in it, especially when applied to the ancient Near East. I suspect that he was possessed by this archetype. Such is its power and numinosity. There is no single idea at the core of this archetype, which, like so many, is multifaceted. 
But if we take the two ends of the axis mentioned above, the archetypal core and the historical conjuncture, then particular gods may disappear, but the essence remains and may be reborn in different form. This provokes thought for our own time, when our myths and gods are dying, but whether we may be in an interim with a rebirth that is to come. The old gods, the old value systems, the old religions may die, but the archetypal core remains, or there may be an image or an awareness or increased knowledge of a cosmic intelligence that has given birth to our universe, our worlds and individuality and connects everything in the cosmos. New myths therefore may be appearing that put the old wine into a new container which will be a synthesis of the emerging science of our times and the best of the spirituality in the world's wisdom traditions. Similarly, on an individual level, the divine principle, the higher self within us, may be lost, that is, die, and return, that is, be reborn. Thus, in the collective as well as the individual, we may see an archetype developing. In rereading the scriptures, both Gnostic and Christian, I have been struck how frequently circumstances are turned into their opposite such is the drama of the period in its writings. The Greek word that Carl Jung was fond of using was enantiodrama to describe this process. Well, the resurrection is a powerful example of this. The Gospels write clearly of the arrest of Christ, his trial and crucifixion. The Roman crucifixion left no room for error. Their victim was dead, beyond all doubt. Christ was then entombed and a stone rolled over the entrance. Peter denied knowledge of him after his arrest when he witnessed him being questioned. He was terrified. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, mention no male disciples at the scene of the resurrection. Mark, the supposed original gospel writer, speaks of a group of women at a distance, no one else. Mark presumably got his information from Peter, who definitely was not there. The Gospel of John speaks of the beloved disciple being there. A few scholars argue that this would have been himself, but many find this implausible. The Romans might well have arrested any obvious male followers and only permitted the females at a distance. The followers of Jesus would have been marked men. However, much of the evidence may have come through the women, for example Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Madeline. Despite the paucity of evidence, I have no difficulty, however, in accepting the crucifixion as fact. I also find very moving his supposed final words. Who heard them, I am not sure, but Matthew writes, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. 
The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. These final cries, the mockery of Jesus, the giving of vinegar as he died, have the ring of truth about them. Here was a man who died in despair. But subsequent events are largely in the realm of the supernatural, and here archetypal and mythical fantasies gain force, but may well be believed in by some of the participants. So, it's highly likely that none of the apostles were there at the crucifixion. They had been traumatised and gone underground. Crucifixion and its previous torture is utterly terrifying. However, the apostles were also desperately confused. Their God, their Messiah, had not freed himself from the Romans, had not passed through their midst, or elevated himself to the heavens. He had not led a revolt, but had submitted to an easy capture, admitted that he was the king of the Jews, suicidal since he immediately classified himself as a political rebel, and was brutally and terminally dealt with as a mortal being. This was a shattering blow to their faith in his Messiah status. The references to the resurrection of Christ are, again, problematic to say the least. Mark's early gospel account finishes with a visit to the tomb by Mary Madeline plus another Mary. They encounter a young man in white who tells them that Jesus has risen. They run away frightened and told nobody. Though obviously they had to tell somebody, but let's pass that over. In later and longer versions of Mark, Jesus appears to Mary Madeline and then in a different form to two unnamed disciples. And they are all disbelieved when they tell what they saw. Next, Jesus then appears to all the remaining 11 apostles, telling them to proclaim the good news to all creation, that they will speak in new tongues, handle snakes, be immune to poison, be able to heal the sick. Jesus is then taken up into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. After this, the apostles proclaim the good news everywhere. There are differences between the accounts of Mark's longer version and those of Matthew and Luke and John, who differ also among themselves. But there is a broad similarity. Paul's versions are simple assertions that Christ rose and appeared to various apostles and followers after his death. No women, incidentally, are mentioned in his report. But the appearance of Christ to Paul himself is a visionary event, sometimes known as ecstatic rapture or invasions from heaven, which are felt not just as real, but more real than any real could be, an ultimate truth, which imparts a tremendous conviction upon the recipient. Many Christians who believe in the literal truth of the resurrection have puzzled over why Christ did not appear to many others, including the Romans, after his death. Why was it not more widely known and recorded, this most astounding and salvationary event in the history of humanity? The reason why, I suggest, and others have done so also, 
is that these appearances, post-resurrection appearances, were visionary, not literally real in the sense that others would see them. They only occurred to some of those who were, as it were, archetypally open to receive them. That is, select followers who were traumatised and desperately seeking help, very attached to Jesus and of an intense spiritual disposition. It is in such people that the ego personality is temporarily shattered and the archetypal material within the unconscious can burst through in visions, voices, dreams, synchronistic events, apparently extraordinary and even miraculous experiences. There is nothing that can really communicate these types of experiences to those who have never had them. If the repressive boundaries of ego consciousness are firmly in place, then such experiences are not believed in. It is only when someone has these experiences that they know that the world of our ordinary consciousness is very limited. We also, at this point, arrive at another important possibility. That Christ and his followers acted out a mythology. This is a rather different way of looking at it. Instead of saying various authors made up the story, the mythology, so that the resurrection would be credible, that is to say that these stories originated in an act of deception, this other way of looking at it argues that the myth possessed the actors. It lived itself out in them, or they lived out the myth. Now, of course, the myth does also reflect the historical period they lived in and the shifts over the first century after Christ. Paul and the very early Christians, Jewish and at the time of the Second Temple, would have been aware of the resurrection of the soul in their tradition. For example, in the book of Daniel in the second century BC, the Pharisees, the group that Paul came from, and a powerful force in the Jewish religious state, believed firmly in a resurrection of the soul and the body, which were to be united after death. And the belief was in some marginal groups. For example, the Essenes believed in the resurrection of the soul. And some people believed that Jesus was an Essene, and certainly talked like them at times, and believed also in the resurrection of the soul. Jesus doesn't really mention the resurrection of the body. Although Paul does mention a resurrected Christ in the body, it is a totally transfigured or supernatural one. The emphasis is really on the soul rather than the body of this world. By the time the Gospels are written towards the end of the first century, decades after Paul, the centre of gravity has shifted out of Judea, indeed the Jewish state has been practically destroyed by the Romans, and a different tradition is operating from the Roman Hellenic world, which the Christians are now largely inhabiting. Not Judea, but modern Turkey and Greece, for example, where emperors, the Roman emperors, would die in their mortal body, disappear after death, return briefly in a new body, witnessed by apparently credible people, and then ascend to a heaven where they would be a god. This process was called apotheosis. Actually, this is exactly what happens to the story of Christ. 
which is changing over the decades of the first and early second centuries. Paul, some apostles and early Christians were infused by visions of Christ which possessed them like mystical experiences and were their reality. The later versions of the canonical Gospels were needed for a different purpose, to convince the emerging Christian community who had never known Judea or Christ or the Apostles and who were immersed in the Roman world of the reality of a risen Christ, not a mystical event which they could hardly experience since they were very far from the source, but as a matter of belief of a truly risen Christ in the flesh, who, like the Roman emperors he was to replace, appeared conveniently briefly, was witnessed and then ascended as a god. Such is at least part of the historical juncture, the changing dramatic circumstances of the time, but the core of the myth remains and has archetypal truth to it, even though it becomes increasingly saturated in mythological fantasy and historical accretions. Our quest, I suggest, is to sort the grain from the husk, to conserve the essence. By that means, we may be able to facilitate its rebirth in the times to come, in the crises that are emerging in the 21st century. There were Gnostics who avoided these problems, for they could think symbolically. Literal interpretations of the life of Christ were for Gnostics such as Thomas and later Valentinus not the true spirituality and meaning of all of this. Death and resurrection were inner events of the spirit to be experienced in one's inner world and were not to be literal events of the outer. This division between, on the one hand, the insistence on literal truth, the necessity of belief and the submission to the power of the church, and on the other, the symbolic and inner nature of the truth, which can be experienced through gnosis, inner knowledge and revelation, goes to the heart of church history, the nature of heresy, and actually takes us through the millennia right up to the times we live in. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic, says, And his disciples said to him, Show us the place where you are, since it is necessary for us to seek it. And he said to them, Whoever has ears, let him hear. There is light within a man of light, and he lights up the whole world. If he does not shine, he is in darkness. In our next podcast, I will examine the history of church doctrine in the centuries up to the fall of the Roman Empire, the fierce division over the true nature of Christ, the beginning of heresy, and how the persecuted church, once it had power, began its persecution and mind control. I hope you can join me.